If one listens to the U.S. media and U.S. politicians, you would come to believe that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. What's going on? Today, we'll talk about the possibility of war between the United States and Russia. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Ryan Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Eugene Perrier from Breakthrough News. Eugene is an author. He's an activist. He's the host of the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. And with Rania Kalik, he is the co-host of The Freedom Side. Eugene, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, if we... Look at the newspaper, New York Times, Washington Post, look at TV news. One couldn't but come to the impression that the United States and Russia are about to go to war. And the reason that they're about to go to war, the two largest nuclear powers in the world, is that Russia, the autocracy led by the autocrat Vladimir Putin, is about to invade Ukraine. And the American people are being spoon-fed this line almost every hour, perhaps even more frequently than every hour. And there is a virtual hysteria in the media. So much hysteria, in fact, that when Joe Biden suggested last week at a press conference that if it was a minor incursion from the Russians, there might not be all-out war. And the Washington Post had these headlines ripping Biden that said, Biden's comments elicit uproar, and the, the eliciting of the uproar was not because he was taking the country to war, perhaps World War III, but because he was suggesting maybe it wasn't necessary. Mm. I want to play, before we get started, a clip from CBS Morning. This is one of the Sunday morning talk shows. It gives us a sense of what the media coverage is like here in the United States. Let's listen. This is a big crisis. It's certainly the biggest crisis since the end of the Cold War. Former NATO ambassador Ivo Dalder is talking about the buildup of 100,000 Russian troops on the border with Ukraine, a former republic of the now defunct Soviet Union teetering between Russia and Europe. For the first time in a very, very long time, we see major, major amounts of military equipment in the middle of Europe ready to invade another country. Wow. First time in a long time. Well, I think he forgot about the Yugoslav War. That yes. was in 1999. Yeah, but anyway, your comments. I mean, you know, I think that this entire controversy is, I mean, it's almost unbelievable, really, when you think about the level of just total dissembling on the part of the U.S. media. I mean, this just constant rush to war. And, you know, what's even more notable about it is you've got the Ukrainian government, which 
I think is getting a little bit of cold feet to some degree about how tense things are getting pulling back. You have all these Ukrainian analysts saying the same thing, like, well, actually, Russia isn't getting ready to go to war. And then you have an article about that in the New York Times front page high up article for a good portion of the you know couple days before we're recording this that is then using all these other experts to refute the Ukrainian government saying that this is not actually happening. So it's a huge amount of distortion, a huge amount of lies. There's no context at all. The sort of teetering between the West and Russia and all these other things. I mean, there's such an attempt to make Russia seem nefarious in all ways, to make the West seem good in all ways, to make it seem as if Russia moving troops around in its own territory is somehow concomitant with the idea of the United States going all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and other European countries going hundreds of miles away from their own borders in order to put all of the most dangerous offensive, they claim it's defensive, but offensive weaponry on the border of Russia. I mean, it's all these false equivalencies that are all designed to weigh the scales of public opinion, if you will, against Russia and in favor of the West and help create the sort of broader atmosphere that allows these sorts of aggressive policies to move forward because they want people to think, well, oh my God, if Russia's doing all these crazy, terrible things, I guess we better go and confront them and do something like that. So the U.S. media is playing, I think, a really critically important role in this war drive. And from what I've seen, and I guess I haven't read every single article in every single newspaper or listened to every single cable news network or radio network, but I've read a lot of them and heard a lot of them and seen a lot of them. And I haven't seen any U.S. media outlet of any stature that is do anything to try to tamp this down, to try to pull back, to try to give more context, to have someone to really, you know, explain the Russian side beyond some American to just sort of caricature it in a negative way. So I think you really can see here more than anything else, the deep integration of the U.S. media with the national security state. No, that's such an important point. I mean, I saw that article in The New York Times. The The article is 24 paragraphs long, and there are 24 references to analysts Unnamed. They never are named in the entire article. And this is a front page story in the New York Times. These unnamed analysts are flummoxed. They're bewildered. They're puzzled. Why do the people in Ukraine and the Ukrainian government not share the alarm that they feel, the unnamed analysts who are quoted on the front page of the New York Times, as it generates this war hysteria? And that's actually because the Ukraine and the Ukrainian people don't actually believe that Russia is about to invade. They don't believe it. In fact, the Ukrainian government has issued statements in the last 24 hours saying, yes, there is a big troop buildup by Russia, inside of Russia, we should mention, but, you know, nearby to Ukraine. But it's not the kind of buildup that would allow for a sustained invasion. So that's not what's happening. So let's go to what the real issue is. What caused this crisis? You know, we had Noam Chomsky's famous book, Manufactured Consent. Mm. This, in a way, is a manufactured crisis around which there's the next manufactured consent. But what's actually happened? I mean, why would Russia, a country that stretches from Europe all the way to the Pacific Ocean, the biggest, largest landmass in the world— care about a few miles of Ukrainian territory? Why would it risk World War III for that? Anyway, what do you think is actually going on? Well, you know, I think there are a number of things going on. And I, I also just want to note here, just really quickly jumping back, about the issue of uh, what the Ukrainian government has said about the Russians not having the, the correct material to invade. All this information was out there for weeks. And there were many experts on the Russian side saying this, and the U.S. media never gave them any sort of hearing. But nevertheless, I think what we see happening here, well, first and foremost, 
When we want to talk about why this is relevant to Russia, we have to understand the history of the country, both sort of Russia and also the history of the Soviet Union, which of course Russia was a part of, and the invasions, the multiple invasions that have come into this country, many of them including the Nazi invasion through the Ukraine, and that have caused massive, massive destruction. 27 million Soviets, 15 million of them Russians, of course, dying during World War II. And this has actually been a big conversation in the German media this week about why is Germany not not as aggressive as the United States or as aggressive as the United Kingdom on this. And it's because there are so many people in the country who are thinking, okay, German weapons that could potentially kill Russians. Well, we've seen that before. And it's been in two deeply destructive world wars. There's an even longer history, of course, that, you know, stretching back to Napoleon with the issue of Western European countries invading Russia and seeking to gain a lot of that landmass that you mentioned and the deep riches that are in Russia and the economic potential that is there. And so this sort of area right here, Ukraine, Belarus, and so on and so forth. These are the traditional marches, if you will, for enemies of Russia to invade the country. And almost all of those invasions, many of which, of course, are deeply rooted in the history and the lore of Russia. I mean, the great novel War and Peace, of course, right? And I think many people around the world are very aware of how deeply held the Great Fatherland War is in the former Soviet republics and in Russia as a major thing. So this is deep, deep in the psyche. You know, you're talking about World War II. We're getting a little bit away from it now, but you know, I'm 35. You know, most people my age and older have a grandparent, or if they're older than me, a parent or someone, or if they're old enough to have fought who died in World War II. So this affected almost the entire society. So this right here is core to the national security needs, not just of the Russian government, but the mentality of Russian people about, okay. When there are these huge destructive wars, what happens first? You know, and where do people come from directly? So I think that speaks exactly to why people are so concerned in Russia. I think it speaks to why many people in Europe are deeply concerned about the precedent that's being set here. And I think it speaks to why this is, is such an explosive issue. And I think what we're seeing from the United States, and, and it's worth taking one step back here and recognizing that no matter how much the U.S. says, oh, we're for peace, we're for this, we're for that. In the national defense strategy, it says explicitly, Russia and China two number one enemies, that we need to increase our military expenditures, that we need to deepen our partnerships and alliances like NATO in order to counter these countries. And one of them, of course, as I'm saying, is Russia. So we know for a fact that all U.S. strategy towards Russia is designed towards containing Russia, limiting its influence, and trying to bully it into doing a foreign policy that's friendly to the United States, friendly to Europe, and not Russia's own independent sovereign foreign policy. And I think this Definitely dovetails here. I mean, we certainly saw, starting in 2021, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, starts aggressively talking about, well, Russia's doing this, that, and the third, because he's trying to lift his sagging approval ratings in the context of many, many failures in his term as president of the Ukraine. And then, of course, the West jumps on this right away, starts aggressively promoting it. And then you have the U.S. and the U.K. in you know, what we've seen is the past month or so, then start putting out these reports. They're going to invade. We're hearing where they're going to invade. There's all these preparations and all these different pieces that are going on. And I think it's a part and parcel of the broader U.S. strategy to contain Russia in the most general sense and to use the fear of war and the constant creeping up to their borders. And when we talk about people being members of NATO, that means they're protected by the U.S.-U.K. nuclear umbrella. So really pushing the threat of nuclear war right up against the border of Russia in order to bully them to change their foreign policy, to do the things that the West wants them to do, not the things that they may want to do, whether we judge those to be good, bad, or indifferent. And I think that is the ultimate context behind what's happening in this conflict. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. And 
I think if we try to boil this crisis down for people who are perhaps not familiar with Ukrainian-Russian history, not paying attention that much to foreign policy, people, of course, are you know, just trying to get by and live their lives and feed their families. So, you know, studying Russia, studying Ukraine might be a little bit complex. But this is my theory, my thesis of what's actually happening. And it's not that complicated, and it's not, it doesn't take that much vision to understand this. The Russians have made it clear, the Russian government, the Putin government has made it clear that the U.S. and NATO will not be allowed to cross two red lines, the red lines, and Putin said as much at the end of his year press conference, he has a four-hour-long end-of-the-year press conference every year. This was in December 2021. He said, look, we're not going to allow Ukraine to become part of NATO. And secondly, whether it's in NATO or not, we're not going to allow Ukraine, our neighbor, to be a staging ground for the placement of foreign troops and advanced weapons that target us, target Russians, right by our border. That's a red line, and that will never be acceptable. And some Western media were sort of challenging him and baiting him, and he said, look, what would you do, meaning America, what would you do if we brought advanced missiles to the U.S.-Canadian border and placed them all along your border? What would you do? Would that be okay? I mean, these would be missiles, the flight time to their targets would be two or three minutes or the U.S.-Mexican border, would that be okay? And of course he said, no, it wouldn't be okay. We're not going to let that happen. So as you said, Ukraine is the area through which other invasions have taken place, the biggest one being in modern history, the Nazi invasion that created a genocide. All the Jews in Ukraine were eliminated by the Nazis. Millions of Ukrainians died. Ukraine was the second largest republic in the Soviet Union. 27 million Soviets died. So Putin is saying, no, if we let advanced weapons come in now, they're just going to keep coming in, and then we'll never be able to turn the clock back. So those are the two issues. So the crisis could end tomorrow if the United States said, you know what, that's a reasonable proposition. You have a lot of security interests at stake. If you're placated by this, we're going to say, we pledge to you, Ukraine won't be in NATO, and we won't place advanced weapons into Ukraine. But the U.S. says, Anthony Blinken said in the recent negotiations, no, absolutely not. That's a non-starter because you, Russia, cannot tell Ukraine who its partners are, who its allies are, and you can't tell us, NATO, who we can accept into our membership. So the answer is no. That's why we could be actually at a crisis, not because Russia is going to invade Ukraine, not because it wants to aggress, but because Russia is serious about these red lines, because if Putin or any Russian president said, yeah, okay, start sending intermediate range missiles that have a flight time of two or three minutes that can strike Moscow and St. Petersburg, fine. That means that the U.S. will go all the way and ultimately Russia will never have a day of peace. That's what this is about, from my point of view. No, I think you're 100% right. I mean, the U.S. is reserving the right, essentially, to at least 
have the threat of waging war against Russia be as strong as possible. They're essentially saying that Russia has no right to be concerned about the United States and the other NATO countries potentially waging war against them, which in and of itself is amazing. I mean, the entire expansion of NATO in the post-Soviet era has been directed against Russia. And it's almost like that history has also been whitewashed and there was all this controversy about, well, they never officially said that they wouldn't expand and we never signed on the dotted line and Gorbachev and blah, 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 missing what is really the key underlying point. Whatever NATO said or didn't say, whatever Clinton did or didn't say to Yeltsin about whether or not they were going to expand, every time there has been a NATO expansion, the whole issue has been about, well, there has to be a bulwark against Russia and the Central European states are concerned about Russia and we have to be able to challenge Russia. So the entire expansion of NATO is actually predicated on military conflict with Russia and the idea that Russia is a military adversary that must be countered you know, destroyed, neutralized, whatever it may be. And yet and still, the United States is willing to push this crisis right to the brink, right to the brink, specifically, as you say, to reserve the right to be able to do whatever warmongering it wants, however close to Russia's border it wants, and saying you have no ability to say anything negative about that. You just have to grin and bear it and accept it. And it really is showing that U.S. foreign policy, imperialist foreign policy, is a bullying foreign policy. It's agree with us or else. If you don't agree with us, we'll just encircle your country and, you know, other nations that hate you and put all sorts of advanced weaponry in their hands and put our own troops there and have them attack you. And it really is, it's unbelievable, really, that something as small as just saying, okay, yeah, fine. When you have Biden saying the Latin America's the U.S. front yard and that we can be able to do whatever we want and no one, that it would be outrageous for Russia to work with Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, or whatever. But then when Russia is raising the issue of, well, how are you going to come right on our borders with all these weapons in the context? of saying we're a global threat that your main principal objective is to be against. I mean, it really just beggars belief the way that this is covered and understood and the sort of false equivalence that's put between the two sides day in and day out. One might have asked the question after the Soviet Union was collapsed, and it was Boris Yeltsin, the leader of Russia, who collapsed it. It was Russia who left the Soviet Union before the other republics. And that was Boris Yeltsin, an ally of the United States. He was supported by the United States. Matter of fact, when he was losing the election in 1996, American political advisors went to save Yeltsin and they basically manipulated the Russian election because otherwise the Communist Party in Russia would have won that election in 1996. There was so much human suffering going on. But, you know, one would ask the question, If Russia was an ally of the United States at that time under Boris Yeltsin and an enemy of communism, and all of the Soviet allies in Eastern and Central Europe had been overthrown and now had pro-Western, pro-U.S. and capitalist governments, and the U.S. was going to integrate those countries into NATO, which is an American sphere of influence, why not incorporate Russia into NATO? Why not have brought that in, too? Because wasn't it a friendly government? And I think the reason the riddle here can be solved by understanding the real geostrategic designs of U.S. imperialism, which is that the U.S. is willing to take into and under its fold or into its alliances countries that will be subservient or supplicant or in a weaker position, countries that can either function like junior partners like Germany or France or Britain, or even weaker countries like the Eastern and Central European countries. But Russia is a big country with a big history. 
And I believe that if the U.S. had incorporated Russia into NATO, the actual post-World War II dynamic, geostrategic dynamic, would have shifted, and Germany and some of the European countries would have gravitated towards their natural ally, which would actually be Russia. Russia-German relations are longstanding. They're economic, they're social, they're political, they're diplomatic. There's cultural yeah, reasons. Almost a thousand years. A thousand year history. Catherine the Great, one of the greatest Russian leaders, is a German. <laughs> yes, she was a German. And so, you know, there's this long, long tradition of German Russian relations. And I believe the United States didn't let Russia into NATO because otherwise it couldn't maintain its hegemonic control over Europe. Europe, in fact, is kind of collateral damage in this thing. And now you have the United States insisting that the European countries have these advanced weapon systems that threaten Russia, which means if there were to be a war between the United States and Russia, it would be the Germans who die mm -hmm. and the Bulgarians and the Poles and the Hungarians and the Ukrainians. And so the people of Europe are really like geostrategic pawns in this larger imperial chess game. And, you know, in 1991, Paul Wolfowitz wrote that white paper that said the U.S., after the fall of the Soviet Union, will brook no other competitor. And we will basically use military means more than any other means, because that was the main tool in the American toolbox, to make sure that there's never again a regional competitor like the Soviet Union had been. Yes. And it's worth noting that he mentions explicitly in that doctrine the importance of Western Europe for exactly the reasons you're, you're pointing out. Right. So now we have Russia back on its feet, China really ascending. So obviously, American geostrategic designs for no competitor anywhere in the world that would challenge U.S. hegemony, that's been shattered. And so now people in Ukraine are in fact pawns as the U.S. tries to put that genie back in the bottle so as to reassert global hegemony. I actually think that's what this is all about. I think that's 100% true. And I mean, you know, one way of even looking at this, and I think the point you're making about had Russia been incorporated into NATO would have been very different, can be seen so clearly because there is, in fact, a sort of cooperation framework on exactly this issue, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which dates back to what I think 1977 and the Helsinki meeting. That was a big part of the detente push that was happening against the Cold War at that time, which was essentially saying, okay, rather than point a bunch of missiles and weapons at one another and talk about killing each other constantly. Let's create a security architecture that includes all sides that are sort of a part of this, the European countries, the Soviet Union, the United States, and have a forum where we can actually discuss what is everyone's concerns and what agreements can we make to help dissipate those concerns to some degree. And that has been essentially sidelined as a forum. You could argue that it never was really operational, but it's been essentially sidelined as a forum in favor of this massive expansion of NATO. And I would also add the expansion of the European Union towards the Russian border as well, which, again, all of these things are pitched towards and against Russia. So rather than use the existing mechanisms that exist to talk about how do we reduce the tensions, how do you reduce the missiles, how do you address the sort of greater underlying issues, whether they be gas transit or whatever it may be, instead you still have this policy coming from the West that is predicated on hostility and predicated on the fact that there can be no real negotiations. But the possibility is certainly there. And Russia, of course, has been pushing for many years and since the Soviet days for this broader framework to be used in in a real way for all of the countries to sit down and try to come up with global agreements that can address everyone's concerns and establish real security and cooperation in Europe. And we see time and time
time again, the U.S. especially, but also the United Kingdom, puts NATO in the forefront and the military response in the forefront and the idea that Russia is some sort of major military threat that is essentially, if left unchecked, is guaranteed to go to war with Western Europe. And I think that just shows right there that it really is about hegemony. Because when you have the ability to talk, when you have a cooperation framework by which to talk, when the issues that are on the table are all, quite frankly, very clear and very easy to address, to do something totally different just shows that your motivation is something totally different. You know, of course, Marx in the 18th Brumaire said history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as a farce. And and now that's become such a cliche used by bourgeois academics and sort of the real significance of the phrase has been lost. But I believe there we're also seeing the, the repetition of history again from tragedy to farce. Again, that was Marx's improvement on Hegel's, you know, cliche that history repeats itself. And Marx said, yes, it repeats itself, but first as tragedy, then as farce. And, you know, I'm thinking back to the Cuban Missile Crisis Mm. in 1962, because at that time, the United States and the Soviet Union, now Russia, almost went to war. For 10 days, the whole world was sitting on the edge of its seat Mm -hmm. because the Soviets had put missiles into Cuba, intermediate range missiles that could target American cities. And the American government found out through intelligence and said, no, we're not going to allow Cuban advanced missiles to be nearby us. And so Kennedy threw the gauntlet down and said to Khrushchev, you either bring them out or we're going to war. And the U.S. set up a naval blockade against Soviet ships. I mean, I was old enough then, young but old enough then to remember, as everyone did, that we thought we might all die any day. Mm. That's how it was Mm -hmm. in 1962. But the reason the Soviets put the missiles in Cuba was the United States had put missiles all over the NATO countries encircling Russia, encircling the Soviet Union with missiles. So Khrushchev thought the only way to break out of the cordon was to sort of have a countermeasure by having Cuba, a new socialist country in the Western Hemisphere, host those missiles. And Fidel, as an act of solidarity with the Soviet Union, said yes, even though it put Cuba really in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that crisis was narrowly averted when the Soviets agreed to take the missiles out of Cuba And the United States agreed privately not to invade Cuba Mm -hmm. and also took out some of the missiles in Turkey and some of those other missiles. So there was a there was a tension near war and then an accommodation. Now, in the early 1980s, when Reagan came in and Reagan and Al Haig said, we're going to stop the communist winning streak because the U.S. empire had been failing all through the 1970s. And they put intermediate-range nuclear weapons, again, all around the Soviet Union, flight time, six minutes. And that's when the Soviets thought war was coming. The Soviets had to almost double their military budget, which took money away from consumer spending. The people in Europe started the freeze, the anti-nuclear movement, which was many millions, because they said, if you put missiles in our country that have a flight time of six minutes, that means the Soviets have to have a computerized retaliation system because there's not time for human intervention. If the missile is launched in six minutes, you don't have a human beings have an opportunity to go up the chain of command and say, is this real? Should we retaliate? Mm -hmm. There's automatic retaliation. That would mean Europe would be incinerated. In 1988, that crisis came to an end when Gorbachev and Reagan signed the Intermediate Nuclear Range Forces Treaty, Mm -hmm. meaning banning both countries from having those kind of weapons. Now, Trump got rid of that treaty in 2018, 
And what Biden is doing is what Trump was doing, was having gotten rid of that treaty, is now putting those kind of weapons in Ukraine. And that's why Putin is saying, no, we said no in 1962. We're saying no in the 1980s. And we're going to say no now. It doesn't really matter that it's Putin. Whoever is the leader of Russia would pretty much have to say the same thing. No, I think absolutely. And, you know, I saw something just unbelievable the other day from David from the, you know, one of the main promoters of the Iraq war in the Bush administration, where he was saying that all of this is Putin's fault and everything needs to be put on Putin's shoulders and then listed all of these, uh, you know, sort of Cold War era deals between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, now Russia, to limit nuclear weapons, to try to take down the temperature. And I just couldn't help but just be aghast because the United States left every single one of those treaties. I mean, Russia was trying to stay in the treaties, renegotiate them, make them stronger. And, you know, even though there was all this hue and cry about Trump being so pro-Russia, you know, the vast majority of them, Open Skies and others, he was the one who left. And then, of course, it was bipartisan support for it. And there's very little bipartisan support for any real significant negotiations with Russia. I mean, to suggest any sort of, you know, pro-peace measure with Russia now, if you're in Congress, you're going to be accused of essentially treason. And everyone is constantly competing to see who could be the toughest against Russia. As much as America is talking so much about, oh, the Russians shouldn't be meddling in other people's politics. I mean, you've got the U.S. Congress and administration trying to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, a private two private companies in Germany and in Russia who have set up this pipeline to the sovereign affairs of what the U.S. claims is one of its closest allies. And Germany claims that this is one of the main things they need for energy security. And you have the U.S. doing everything possible to try to destroy it. I mean, you couldn't have any more meddling than that, quite frankly. But I think that ultimately, when you look at the situation that is existing currently, we are in a, a, a moment where there has been a complete and total collapse of almost all of the architecture that existed to prevent a nuclear war between what was in the Soviet Union, later Russia and the United States, which is part of what I think makes this so scary is so many of the tripwires that had previously been set up explicitly because of the point you're making here that nuclear war can happen quickly. The escalation can happen quickly. Those are all gone. So, you know, when you're in a situation like this right now where it's an active conflict in eastern Ukraine, so you have the ability for kind of any flashpoint to become much bigger than just an artillery shell killing five or six people. I mean, it really could become a major conflagration that could lead to nuclear war because there is no real deterrence in Europe other than nuclear deterrence. And it's that a mutually assured destruction that sort of brings things together. And so when things escalate, you know, it can go beyond conventional conflict, I think, a lot quicker than most people think. And without these deals, without this architecture that has existed, I think it makes it significantly more dangerous. This is why William Cohen, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, said several years ago he thinks the threat of nuclear war is higher now than it's ever been in his entire life, which is stunning because that, of course, stretches back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and all these other terrible kind of near-miss situations. So I think that historical precedent you lay out is 100% important for people to understand here that this isn't something new, that this is the U.S. hegemonic reality towards other nations. Anyone who shows the ability to be independent, to be nationally sovereign, and to offer any sort of counterweight to total U.S. control of the world is constantly not only demonized, not only surrounded, not only sanctioned, but really threatened with the danger of nuclear war, not just war particularly, in order to try 
tried to stop that. And that's an extraordinarily bellicose policy that can have very, very negative consequences, but it's deeply rooted in the American or at least the American foreign policy establishment psyche that the U.S. must do everything at all times to maintain this total hegemony. They've done it the whole Soviet period. They're doing it again now. And we see they're willing to use the European people and, quite frankly, the people of Russia and the United States who would be hurt by a nuclear war as pawns in that game. I think that's so important and so not discussed. The equilibrium that you discussed, which was the architecture of arms control agreements between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, after World War II, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, once the Soviet Union achieved some degree of military or nuclear parity, ultimately the Cold War started to, it didn't go away, obviously, because it was basically a struggle between two social systems based on socialism on one and then the capitalist ruling class on the other. But there was an equilibrium so that it was a managed rivalry. When you think about World War I, you know, a war unlike any war that had come before it, a war that took 20 million lives, it was a consequence of unmanaged rivalry. World War II, unmanaged rivalry. The bipolarity between the U.S. and the socialist camp led by the Soviet Union was, you know, developed into a certain equilibrium where each side had enough treaty rights, like the ABM, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, like the Intermediate Nuclear Range Treaty, such that both sides recognized if there is actually a war, we will both be destroyed. It's not a winnable situation. And so the equilibrium gave a certain deterrence to nuclear war, where if it's an unmanaged rivalry, if one side really believes they can get supremacy and win the nuclear war, then, as William Cohen says, it becomes ever more dangerous. And that's really the danger. It's not because Putin is about to invade Ukraine. It's because things happen in battlefields. You know, I don't know how many people in eastern Ukraine have died, Eugene, but it's more than 10,000. It may be like 20,000. Ukraine as a country, as a republic, developed in 1924 as part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It was one of the republics. By the end of the Soviet Union, there were 15 of them. Ukraine was the second largest of the republics. Russia was the largest. Now, in the 1924 Soviet Constitution, parts of Ukraine what are now Ukraine or became Ukraine, were sort of pushed together to create a Ukrainian republic. It basically gave a nod to Ukrainian nationalism, the desire for Ukrainian self-determination. But these are peoples who are not only, you know, one ethnicity or another. There are a lot of Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, and that's the way the borders of that republic were created in 1924. So the east, the Donbass region, ethnically Russian, Russian-speaking culturally Russian. As a matter of fact, about 43 to 46% of the population in Ukraine, even today, has Russian as its first language. But, you know, it didn't exist as a republic before that. Then in 1991, it becomes an independent republic when the Soviet Union collapses and all of those republics become independent countries. Now, let's talk about Crimea a little bit, because Crimea has been a flashpoint ever since 2014, because Crimea was a part of Ukraine, but it only became a part of Ukraine when the Soviet Union decided, mm-hmm. after Stalin's death, basically Khrushchev decided, let's have this part of Russia, Crimea, on the Black Sea, be 
administratively affixed to Ukraine, Mm -hmm. which was no big deal at that time because it would be like taking part of New Jersey and making it part of Pennsylvania. They were one country. Anyway, let's talk about Crimea because obviously the U.S. media narrative is that Russia has invaded Crimea in 2014, seized Crimea, and this was the you know original sin now, at least in contemporary times of the Putin administration, showing evil designs on the part of Russia towards Ukraine, trying to dismember Ukraine. Anyway, your thoughts on that? No, well, I mean, I think the point you made is the key point there. I mean, the vast majority of people in Crimea were, as far as any sort of evidence is out there, were in support of this. Obviously, you know, many of them are ethnic Russians. Many of them wanted to be a part of Russia. Other than this sort of brief period where it became a part of Ukraine, it has a long history as part of, you know, the broader Russia, the broader Tsarist Empire, obviously being one of the main fronts of the Crimean War, which is a, you know, major, major event in the history of Russia, a major event in the history of wars. So, I mean, this is a a part of the world that has been 100% identified with, except for a very short period, with the overall issue of being Russian, being a part of Russia, and it shouldn't have been controversial at all. But I think it just goes to show, one, how little context there is anywhere in the U.S. media. And I think that's been a theme we've hit over and over again here on on the show today. But I think it's worth, you know, thinking about how these sorts of narratives are manufactured and really given to us that in the entire, you know, quote unquote crisis of Crimea, I don't even really know if it was a crisis. I mean, (laughs) but anyway, let me not get too far afield. I mean, during that whole time, I don't think I remember reading really anywhere once in the U.S. media. Maybe I did and I missed it. The issue you mentioned about sort of the administrative element of why Crimea was a part of Ukraine related to Khrushchev. I mean, you would have thought that this was like if, you know, I don't know, a part of New Jersey became a part of Iran or something like that. I mean, that was the way it was presented. Like it was so just outrageous. There were so many cultural differences and so on and so forth. And there was just none of that context that was put forward. And then obviously, you know, then it goes to this, again, this nefarious Russia meme, the so-called little green men and all these other different aspects of how Russia is using its paramilitary power to bully other countries and take over and so on and so forth. So yet again, everything in the media goes back to this idea of decontextualizing and distorting the history, distorting the reality, and using that to portray Russia as an aggressor. So whether we're talking about Belarus, whether we're talking about the Ukraine crisis right now, whether we're talking about Crimea, everything is so decontextualized, distorted, and outright lies told about it that there's only one real thing you can take from this kind of coverage, which is that Russia is an evil, big, aggressive country trying to take over every element of Eastern Europe that it possibly can. And then, of course, that means that there must be a a counter to that. So I think Crimea, like so many other situations we've seen, was very heavily manipulated, still being manipulated to this day, quite frankly, in order to present a very specific view of Russia. Because again, you go back to that national defense strategy and you look at them saying Russia and China are two biggest enemies. And then it goes on to say, you know, the same sentence or a sentence later, that there must be increased investment in order to counter them. So you've got a reality where the United States foreign policy establishment, the ruling elites have decided that not only are they going to go way out of their way to try to isolate, destroy, bully Russia and China, but they have to then create some sort of rationale to increase the amount of money that they're spending on it when there's actually no real 
evidence that these countries are planning war against the United States. So without a deeper narrative that is able to underlie all of that, it's not really going to be possible for them to pursue the goals that they're openly saying they are pursuing. And I think that's another aspect of this. A lot of this is not hidden. A lot of this is exactly what they're saying they're doing. But since it's not reported that way in the press, you don't get the sense of, of what's really happening. Well, let's let's do some contextualizing. So Crimea votes. There's a referendum, which obviously the Russian government favored. They promoted it. The people in Crimea vote in referendum June 1914 to reassociate with Russia. But a few months before that, and this is the triggering event, there was a coup d'etat in Ukraine against the government of Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych was a corrupt government, like all the Ukrainian governments have been since 1991, but it was a democratically elected government. And Yanukovych is presented in the Western media, the U.S. media, as being pro-Russia. But he wasn't pro-Russia. He wanted to balance Ukraine between the United States and Russia. And he actually wanted Ukraine to enter the EU, the European Union. But the European Union said in the fall of 2013, look, we'll let Ukraine come into the EU, not as a full partner, but as part of what was called a European Association Agreement. But the association agreement had very strict, bad economic conditions. It was an agreement of austerity because, of course, Ukraine is very poor now. It has the lowest gross domestic product per capita of any European country. So to be allowed into the EU would actually bring in a poor country to the EU. So the EU said, no, you have to, we're going to treat you like we treated Greece. There's going to be austerity. And so Yanukovych said in October, November 2013, well, we don't want that agreement. And protests began in Maidan, in the center square in Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine. And those protests went October, November, December. They got worse in January. John McCain and Victoria Nuland, who was Assistant Secretary of State and had been Hillary Clinton's spokesperson, when she became Secretary of State originally, they were actually in the Maidan, literally handing out cookies. Yeah, McCain gave a speech. Yeah, they're handing out cookies, and McCain was also having his photo taken with these right sector, like, fascist forces. Yeah, Chris Murphy, I believe, is also there, Democratic senator. Yeah, so it's Republicans, it's Democrats, it's... State Department officials, you got everybody there. You got the whole gamut of the U.S. government. Suddenly, like, the U.S. government loves protests. Like, I've done a lot of protests in Washington, D.C. I've never seen any of them come out in front of the White House and join a protest. But there they were in Kiev. There was an agreement finally made, and the agreement was signed, actually, on February 21st, 2014, between the Yanukovych government, and the opposition. The opposition wasn't all fascist. It was a blend. Some, though, were fascists. Real Nazis. Yes, including a lot of the street fighters that were pushing Yeah, and there was people getting killed in the Maidan. There was sniper fire. So there was an agreement on February 21st, and the agreement basically stipulated that there would be early elections for the president, head of state, and that would likely mean that Yanukovych would lose. So Yanukovych agreed to that. He agreed to devolve central authority from the federal government to the regions, another demand of the opposition, and a couple other demands that the opposition was insisting on. And Yanukovych was basically saying, yes, Germany was there at the table. I think Poland was there, perhaps France, EU representatives. The U.S. was there as an observer. The Putin government also sent an observer. So this international gathering came to witness 
the agreement to end the protests by giving in to the protesters' demands. That was February 21st. On February 22nd, the next day, Nazis, right sector and other right-wing fascist parties in Ukraine, stormed the parliament, guns in hand, dispersed the parliament. Yanukovych flees for his life. And those same people who were in Maidan, Chris Murphy, McCain, Victoria Nuland, they say in the face of this fascist coup d'etat, this is a great day for Ukrainian democracy. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, and this is important, they weren't just handing out cookies. They were orchestrating this coup. Not all the people in Maidan were American puppets or European Union puppets, but some were. And we have some audio clips. It's very famous. It was a leaked phone call between Victoria Newland and then U.S. Ambassador to the Ukraine, Jeffrey Piat. And in this conversation, and we're going to play it for our audience, in this conversation, you have Victoria Nuland speaking about three opposition figures. So you'll hear names that you might not be familiar with. We can come back and discuss who they are. And the fourth name that you hear is the name of Yanukovych. Mm-hmm. And what she's basically saying to Piat, the U.S. ambassador, is who's going to be the next prime minister of Ukraine? This is in January, mm-hmm. a month before the coup. And in this conversation, Victoria Nuland tells Piat, who's sort of representing some of the views he's hearing from the EU, she says, no, not this guy. No, not that guy. It's going to be Yats. It's going to be Yats. Yats is the guy. And Yats is Yatsenyuk. Now, interestingly, Yatsenyuk is an economist. He was part of the banking establishment. The U.S. knew all about Yatsenyuk. The coup happens. And like five days later, Yatsenyuk becomes the prime minister of Ukraine. I mean, amazing. Let's listen to this amazing phone call. There's two audio clips, actually. We can play them consecutively, I think, or we'll play one and then I'll come back to you, Eugene, and then we'll play the other. But this really helps our audience and helps all of us understand what's actually going on with the protest movement in Maidan. Let's listen to Victoria Newland's call. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. The problem is going to be Tony Boke and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm I, kinda... I, I, just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleet and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. By the way, Eugene, Tony Book is a fascist. Yeah. Uh, he's part of one of the fascist parties. I think, I think there's a famous photo of him giving a Nazi salute. Somebody made a meme. It's a picture of Tony Book shaking hands with Joe Biden. And of course, Biden's son, Hunter, yeah, with Barisma, Barisma. Gas. And Biden was a part of the conversations, I believe, of Victoria Nuland, I believe, in this same call, talking about how he would be brought in at a later stage to help sort of clear the way in terms of, of yeah, the, and the so deal. Biden's son, Hunter, who's a, a ne'er-do-well, yeah. you know, evicted from the Air Force or National mm-hmm. Guard for drug use, whatever, whatever, he suddenly gets appointed to the Burisma gas company, an industry he knows nothing about, but I think he was being paid $50,000 a month to be yeah. on the... Yeah, and in their promotional materials, they were stressing how, in all the different parts of Central Asia they were working, they were stressing, oh, we have really close ties with the United States. This is why you want to work with us, not some of these other people, because you're not going to have any problem with the U.S. even working in the sort of kind of broader Russian quote-unquote space. Right. So, okay, so you have 
Newland, Chris Murphy, John McCain, Joe Biden, completely bipartisan. doesn't matter. They're yeah. all part of the American imperialist establishment. But anyway, when you hear you know, the way Victoria Newland's talking, Yats is the guy, Yats is the guy. And yeah, five days later, Yats and Yuk becomes prime minister. We have one more audio clip. I want to play it. Okay, I've now written, oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. I uh, can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the U.N. guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He, he's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it and, you know, Fuck the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. How dare the Russians try to torpedo their coup d'etat? I mean, how dare the EU seek to be involved in European issues? Those are very choice words that Victoria Nuland used about the EU. I thought the U.S. and the EU were allies. How could she say F the EU? I mean... Well, I mean, going back to that Wolfowitz doctrine, if the European countries aren't towing the line, they got to get pushed out of the way here, too. I think we're seeing that in this current crisis with the just I mean, in the Anglo-American media, if you will, there's a full court press going against Germany right now, doing everything possible to try to suggest Germany's weak. Germany's divided. They're dividing the West. They're helping Russia. You know, a bunch of them are in the pockets of Russia, all these other elements to try to bully them into changing their position. You know, European countries are only allies to the extent they toe the line on U.S. security, uh, excuse me, security, really war-based realities in Europe, which is, of course, countering Russia. But it's an unbelievable statement when you think about it. I mean, she's talking about using the United Nations as the key vehicle for the U.S. to manipulate the politics of Ukraine to cut out the EU, to cut out Russia, and to put the people they want in charge. And, of course, you mentioned Yatsenyuk. The first thing he does is, or I don't know if it's the first thing he does, one of the first thing he does is he signs this EU association agreement. And I think what you're saying is notable. I mean, to sign that agreement, what Yanukovych was being asked to sign up to, and it included an IMF loan, was to increase gas prices for the average Ukrainian citizen by 40%. I mean, that would be crippling for people in Ukraine. And then there are a number of other subsidiary issues, like the amount of aid that the EU was willing to offer vis-a-vis Russia and other things like that. But they were really being asked to sign up for massive austerity for their own people. And that's what Yatsenyuk signs up for. And that's what it really means. I mean, when McCain was there in the square making his speech, his whole thing is about how the future of Ukraine is with Europe. You need to be with Europe. You need to do all this. It's not about Europe is great or the EU is great. We can see from this call they don't care about that at all. But that, in fact, is the vehicle by which they can hook Ukraine into the Bretton Woods institutions, also dominated by the United States, and the broader Western hegemonic project that's aimed against Russia. So to break them economically away from Russia, two countries that are, I mean, at the time this was happening, Russia's Ukraine's biggest economic partner, obviously, naturally, look at where they are, look at the history, they should be working closely together. But the goal of this association agreement is to break the economic link in a major way between Russia and Ukraine and to turn the politics and the economics of Ukraine in such a way that it's easier to use them as a pawn in the anti-Russian realities because there are fewer links tying the two together that might make people think, well, wait a second. 
are we gaining or losing by going to war with Russia and by having these aggressive policies? That's what they really wanted to do. That's why the U.S. wanted someone in there who'd be willing to sign this agreement, not because they actually care about the freedom and democracy that Europe claims that it's bringing to Eastern Europe with the so-called Eastern Partnership Agreements. Yeah, we're going to wrap up, but the people in Ukraine are pawns in this case. Mm-hmm. But the people in the United States are pawns, too, because... You know, the war fever being generated against Putin, which is decontextualized, which is just demonizing, it has a big impact. If you go around and ask people right now in the in New York City or Washington, D.C., there's probably a great deal of animus and hostility towards Russia. Same with China. And I think we have to tell people who are watching this show, who are watching alternative media, looking at breakthrough news, listening to the socialist program, you know, When we went to war, we, the United States, the government that speaks in our name, went to war in Afghanistan. They said it was, you know, to liberate the people of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And 20 years later, the U.S. was still fighting and then basically surrendered to the Taliban. When the United States went to war against Iraq, they said, we have to. Otherwise, Saddam Hussein is a menace to the people of the region and to you. Condoleezza Rice said the next terrorist attack will be a mushroom cloud, like Saddam had nuclear weapons. And so, you know, the U.S. went to war there. The U.S. went to war against Libya. Slavery reemerged in in Libya, the country that had been financing the Organization of African Unity. If you think about Vietnam, you think about every war that the United States has dragged the people of this country into based on catastrophic miscalculation, stupidity, hubris, arrogance, and imperialist objectives, you think the American people too are pawns. And I think what's most important at this moment when things are, as you put it, so dangerous because it's an unmanaged rivalry and things can happen, even if they don't want a war, a big war, it could happen. We have to go into action. The people of this country have to take action. I know there are demonstrations on Thursday in front of the White House, Answer Coalition, Black Alliance for Peace, Code Pink, Popular Resistance, some other organizations are doing it. I believe there will be other protests around the country. But this is serious. This is serious. And people have to get out of the mindset of listening to the media and letting the media shape your emotions and your psychological framework when it comes to the targeted country, because whoever is targeted is so thoroughly demonized Mm -hmm. that we're all taught to hate or fear them or both. Anyway, you get the final word. This is a moment where people need an anti-war movement. No, I think you're 100% right. And I think to go back to some of the historical examples we've used, I mean, the times where the tensions have been lessened in these potential nuclear conflicts have been when people have stood up and said, whoa, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, certainly the Cuban Missile Crisis is what opened the door in many ways for a broader conversation about detente in the Soviet Union. As you mentioned, in the 80s, especially even more so in the 80s, the struggle of people in the United States and in Europe against the various nuclear missiles, the B-1 bomber, and all these various different weapon systems that were about this is what really shifted the ground and changed the conversation that opened up the possibility. I mean, is there a Reykjavik where Reagan starts to pull back from some of his most aggressive statements if there hadn't been a million people on the streets of New York City and almost all of Western Europe up in arms? 
peaceful arms, if you will, over the issue of nuclear war. So I think when you look at how things change and how things are actually affected in this context, yes, the politicians aren't going to do anything. Yes, the two major parties are 100% beholden to this kind of warmongering policy. But just like in the past, the ground can be shifted, but it can only be shifted if people take their own lives into their own hands, use their own agency to stand up and be counted and say, this is wrong. We have to do something different. I couldn't agree more. U.S. capitalism is addicted to militarism and war. The government speaks in our name, but it really speaks on behalf of the capitalist class and its global interests. So, Eugene, with you and with others who believe in peace, we urge people to come into the streets in the coming days and weeks to say no to a U.S. war with Russia. We've been joined today by Eugene Perrier. Eugene, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 